before we jump in, I do want to again say welcome, uh, Fellowship Asheville. Let me tell you what I hope happens today. Um, it's the same thing I hope happens every Sunday, but I've got something a little specific here today. Um, I hope that you leave here today ready to walk in more faith and trust in Jesus than you walked in, right? And even better, I hope that you're ready to walk in more faith and trust with Jesus tomorrow than you have today. And in particular, here's what I hope happens with our message. We're going to talk about obedience. And, and it's real easy when you talk about obedience to feel weight and to feel like you have to work for something. Uh, and what we're going to see is just the opposite, actually. And so what I hope happens today, that in our faith and trust in Jesus, you actually leave here lighter than you walked in. You actually leave here understanding uh, that your job is to trust in Jesus, not to work for Jesus, but to work with Jesus. And so, so my prayer has been, as we met and prayed before the service, our prayer has been that we cease striving is the word for that, uh, that we cease working in our faith, but we work with Jesus in our faith, because I'm telling you, it makes all the difference. And so let me pray for us. Jesus, that's what I pray. I ask that you would let us leave here today, uh, let us leave this time of worship lighter than we walked in, uh, and that that lighter isn't fake, that that lighter isn't, isn't based on some, uh, some sort of, of, of philosophy or psychology that's not rooted in you, but we walk out of here lighter because we're more rooted in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. We've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, calling this series Rebuilder, because we keep asking ourselves the question, what is God stirring in me? What is God rebuilding in me? Especially during this time as we come out of a pandemic, uh, there is a lot to rebuild, and there's a lot of stuff to not rebuild. Right, And so that a very, that's a very important question for us, is what is God stirring? What is God rebuilding in me? And so to do a real quick recap, uh, particularly from last week, last week we left off in Nehemiah 9, where we saw what was called the Solemn Assembly. Right? And, and we saw where the nation of Israel recounted their history. Now, if you, if you weren't here last week or didn't listen last week, go back and listen to it. We covered a lot of ground, uh, but it was really good. We started in Genesis and then popped around and ended up uh, all the way in the New Testament, and it was great. But here's what we saw as the nation of Israel recounted their history. Is, is they did it looking through the lens of a particular promise or, or covenant that God had made with them, the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant of land and seed and blessing. And, and we saw the nation get what God had promised, but, but not just that. What we also saw is we saw God fulfill the promise. And here's, here's, here's why I think this, this is important. I'm going to use a little illustration here. All right, um, here's what people, I think, tend to think and what I can tend to think. This is just a pipe cleaner, and it's supposed to be a straight line, but as I hold it in the middle, it's not quite so straight. But it's a straight line, right? And a lot of people think that when God makes a promise, the promise is on one side, and, and, and my ability to live in that promise is on the other side, right? And so, so God makes a promise, and that's where God stops, and then I start trying to live 
out that promise. And in particular, if you think about the, the, the nation of Israel, we'll call this line thinking. The, the nation of Israel in this, in this type of thinking was God made a promise for land. Our job is to work the land, to make sure nobody invades the land. Our job is to do all the work to keep that promise. But we saw something happen in Genesis that makes this kind of thinking actually very wrong. Because see, line thinking is God speaks and then the rest is up to me. That's what feels heavy. Because it is, right? Because we were never made to fulfill God's promises, God was made to fulfill his promises, and that's what we saw in Genesis, that God made a promise, and God fulfilled that promise. And that's what we see when we go all the way back to Genesis and, and, and see that original covenant. We, we saw something very different. Instead of, instead of God making a covenant and Abraham keeping it, do you remember what Abraham was doing when God made the covenant and, and sealed it? He was sound asleep. Right? He had nothing to do with it. God did it all. And so instead of thinking of God's promises like a line, like a boundary, where this is where God stops and this is where I start, it's, it's easier to think of it and better, I think, to think of it more of a circle. right? To where God makes the promise, he seals the promise, and he fulfills the promise. Because that's what we saw as the nation of Israel read their history they realized that God made this promise and God kept the promise. God brought them to the land. He provided for them on their journey to the land. He protected them on their way to the land and he protected them in the land. And it was only a problem when they stepped outside this circle and forgot to trust God and forgot the promises of God. Because see, we saw God make this promise and seal this promise and to fulfill this promise. And so as the, as the history of Israel unfolded, we saw that the nation did best when they remembered the promises of God and trust, trusted God to fulfill those promises. Does that make sense or is this a little weird and abstract? Because I think it might be a little weird and abstract, but, 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 but bear with me. I'm going to keep referring to it, right? Because the point is, when, when, when God makes a promise, right, we don't work to fulfill that promise. Our job is to respond to the God of the promise. Our job is to trust the God of the promise. And that's when we live in like this circle of promise or circle of trust, if you will, right? That, that's, what this, that's what this is. And so, so, so we said this last week. We said that, that when the nation of Israel, when they remembered the promises of God, they experienced life with God. And when they forgot the promises of God, when they didn't trust God, when they, when they forgot that God was their provider and protector and, and, and all of that, that's when they got into all kinds of trouble, right? That's when they created their own gods. That's when they, that's when they sinned. And so another way to think about this is when they trusted God to fulfill the promise, they experienced life with the God of the promise, right? And when they didn't trust God, what they experienced was discipline. Because God wanted to bring them back into a place of trust, right? It wasn't punishment for the sake of them being bad. It was discipline to bring them back into a place of trust. And so today, what we're going to see is we're going we're gonna to see the nation of Israel step back into this place of trust, step back into this, this circle of promise. And what they're going to do is they're going to make a declaration, like Andrew talked about. 
They're going to make these, these, these statements of obedience, if you will. And so this word declaration, if you're at home writing it or, or with kids, that, like that's how you spell it, right? It's a really big word, so I wanted to put it up there because I wouldn't have known how to spell it. I still barely know how to spell it, right? And so what I want you to do is, is we're going to see this word a lot today, and so I want you to help me out. When, when I say the word declaration, what do you think of? Like, how would you define declaration? If you're online, leave some comments and, and our host will respond. But if you're here in person, like, 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 how would you define the word declaration? Do what? A, a statement? What did you say, Deb? A statement. Speaking with authority, a statement, yeah, yeah. What else, what else do you think of? Something public. Yeah, that's true. You can't really make a declaration in private. I mean, you can, but it kind of loses a little, a little oomph, doesn't it? Yeah, what else? Do what? Making an oath. Yes, yes, very good. It is, it is like a promise or an oath, isn't it? And, where, and, and we're going we're gonna to see that. You see, in response to all that the nation of Israel had done for God, what the nation of Israel is going to do right now is they're going to mark this moment of them seeing God's faithfulness and understanding that God not only made the promise, he sealed the promise, and he fulfilled the promise. And they're going to make these, these declarations of obedience. And so if, you, if you're in Nehemiah chapter 10, I actually want you to look up a couple of verses because we've got the last uh, verse or two in chapter 9. This is actually where it starts. And the nation says, because of all this, because of all the history that they've recounted, this is uh, verse 938, because of all this, because of all that God has been doing in us and through us, whether we saw it or whether we didn't, the fact is that God did it. And now they're realizing when they looked back on their history, they can see everything that God has done. And so, so their response that we're going to see is because of all this, because of all this amazing history of God's provision and protection and redemption, here's what they're going to do. Chapter 9, verse 38 says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, last time I saw this word covenant a lot. But in Hebrew, this word firm covenant... We love it. Yep, yep. Because, but this word firm covenant is different because when we looked at the word covenant last week, it was a promise that God made to his people. This word in Hebrew is a different word and it means a promise that people make to God. That's where I'm getting the word declaration because that's what it is. They're making this declaration of, hey, we've experienced life with you, God, and now we're going to respond to that. And this is how we're going to respond. We're going to make a declaration. and We're going to make an oath. We're going to make this, this promise before you. In other words, what they're doing is they're going to do something using a word that I almost took it out of here because I don't like it. They are defining their new normal. Anybody tired of hearing about a new normal? Yes, let me tell you, normal wasn't normal before the pandemic. Right? It's certainly not normal now. But what they're doing is they're saying, this is what we want our life to look like from here on out. Now, before I go on, I think the order of these events is critical, y'all. And this is where our life with God moves from rest to work or work to rest. And it's this, that experiencing life with God is what helps us to obey God. 
Now, here is why that's critical. If you flip those around, it feels like work. That if you think to experience life with God, you have to obey God first. Ooh, let me tell you, you're going to be worn out. But if you experience life with God first, that's what helps you obey God. And that difference is critical. Can you feel the difference of the weight of that? Like, what would you feel like if I told you to experience life with God, you have to obey God? Oh, it feels heavy, right? But it feels different. Say, no, 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 no. Actually, when you experience life with God, that's what helps you obey God. And you're like, oh, I can, I can do that. You know why you can do that? Because God made you to do that. That's why. You see, life with is first, and then obedience too. And, and, and this declaration that we're going to see is because they've stepped into this circle of trust. They've stepped into this circle of promise. They've realized that God is the one who does all of this. Now, line thinking says this, God has stopped showing his love to me, and so to get God's attention, I've got to. I've got to obey. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. That's line thinking, and it is so heavy, but circle thinking says, no, no, no. God, and this is what the nation of Israel saw, God has always shown his love to me. Even when I turned my back on him, he was showing his love to me. And so because of that, here's what we're going to do. And the rest of verse 938 says this, And on the sealed document were the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so what they do is they actually write this stuff down. They write these declarations down. And the people who sign it are the leaders of the nations, the, the spiritual leaders, the, the, the governmental leaders of the nation. It's all the leaders of the nation. Much like our Declaration of Independence is signed by the leaders of the nation, not by every person of the nation, this is the same way. Right, And so, so if, you, if you read uh, the next chunk of verses, like the next, oh, 27 or so, it's a list of names. Guess what I'm going to do with those names? I'm going to tell you to read them at your own leisure. There's some great names there, um, some great stuff there. Take your time with it. Uh, but we're going to jump down to verse 28. Right, So chapter 10, verse 28, it says this. It says, the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath uh, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And so now what the people are doing is they're responding to this. So, so the leaders have signed it, right? And, and now uh, they're going to, to, the people are agreeing to, to live to these covenants. They're saying this wasn't just for the leaders, this was for all of us, right? And let's look at what's in this declaration. In verse 30, it says this. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
So this was the first declaration. And this first act of obedience in response to all that God has done deals with relationships. Now, this is important. We've talked about this in Ezra. Ezra had this same issue. Uh, we, we, or, you know, we, we see this in the book of Ezra. We see this here again with Nehemiah. And just like we talked about it then, we've got to understand this isn't about race or ethnicity. Right? This is about something else because we know that this isn't about race or ethnicity because it's not against the law for an Israelite to marry a Moabite. We've got an entire book of the Bible that shows us that. We've got the book of Ruth, right? And what we see in Ruth is that she was a Moabite who was a faithful follower of God. And she married Boaz, and we see her in the line of Jesus. And so it's not against. Race. It's not against ethnicity. This is something else. And here's what it is. Remember, God uh, brought the nation of Israel to the land that they're living in, right? He promised it, He sealed it, He fulfilled it, and He brought them there. And every piece of dirt that they stepped on and built on and, 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 and grew fields in was a testimony of God fulfilling and keeping His promise to them. And so, so when they're in this land of the nation of Israel, it, it, this land and this, this promise to them is, is, is a way to, to, to point to, to God. It's a way of living in this trust. And so, so now, in and around this land that the nation of Israel lives in, there are people from other nations. And people from other nations worshipped other gods. Right? And so if the nation of Israel is designed to be this billboard pointing to their God, a God who, who faithfully fulfills promises and, and keeps promises, a God who, who provides for them and protects them. If, if a person brought uh, a spouse into their home who worshipped another God, it'd get all muddled up. Because then it'd be like, okay, wait, 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 now whose God did this? Did your God do this or did their God do this? And so this isn't, this isn't about, about race. This isn't about mixed race. That's never been a problem in the Bible. What it's about, it's about mixed religion. And what had happened is the nation of Israel had done that. They had, they had married people of other religions and they had, they had created idols in their homes. And so, so this first declaration was to say, we're not going to do this anymore. And now let's pause for a moment because, because this is real interesting in, in, in their history, but we also see this in the New Testament church, right? We also see this, this same kind of declaration for the New Testament church. We see it after Jesus when Paul was planning churches. If you'll turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. And I'll, I'll read it. It's a very famous verse that has lots of applications. Now, we tend to make one application with it, but there's actually a whole lot of applications with it, right? And the, and, and the verse is this. Now, remember, this is Paul talking to a church that he had started that had gone off the rails in many ways and had, had knocked it out of the park and some others. And, and what he's continually drawing them to is the same idea that when you trust God, you live the way God commands you. And so, so in 2 in Corinthians 6, verse 14, Paul says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? What, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
Right? And so what Paul's making this point, it's the same point here, that, that your life as a Jesus follower is a billboard to God. Because when you follow Jesus, you, you, you are declaring that Jesus, that God made a promise and Jesus sealed that promise and fulfilled that promise. And so your life is this billboard to God of God's protection and provision for you, just like for the nation of Israel. So is the church and so are the people of the church. And when you enter into relationships, particularly covenant relationships with people who worship other gods, it does the same thing. It says, wait, 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 so who did this? Did your God do this or did their God do this? And it, and it muddles all that up. And so marriage is one of those covenant relationships established by God. That if you enter into this partnership, into this covenant between the two of you and God, and there's two different religions, it gets it all muddled up. And so when you enter any type of covenant relationship, I've even, I've even heard business owners talk about if you're going into a partnership with someone and they have a different faith than you do, it's going to get rough, right? But marriage, I think, is probably the, the easiest one for, for us to latch on to because in the Old Testament where there were these, these different religions, in the, in the New Testament it's seen as the same thing. It's seen as disobedient, and so now it's obviously a problem in Ezra and Nehemiah. We see it here. We see that it was a problem in the New Testament church. But, but I'm going to tell you as a pastor, here's what I've also seen. It continues to be a problem in the nowadays church. As the, as the age of marriage has been increasing over the years, here's what happens. Is that the things that we set as priorities and looking for a spouse, faith has moved further and further down that list. And, and, and what happens is it makes it really, really hard because how is it possible when what you hold true at your core isn't shared with a person that you share life with? It makes it hard. I was doing premarital counseling. A couple had asked me to do their premarital counseling um, uh, where one of them was a believer and the other one wasn't. And um, I said, yes, I'll do your premarital counseling, but it's going to be hard. And uh, it was. They, they never even finished premarital counseling with me because it got so hard. At one point, I asked them, I said, I said okay, let's just, because we were talking about faith. That continued to be the issue. And so it came up about Christmas. And I said, what are you going to do at Christmas? You know, if the kids ask, you know, or Easter, what are you going to do about Easter? If the kids ask, what is Easter, how are you going to respond? And the person who wasn't a believer said, well, I'm going to say that the person who is a believer is right. And I'm like, well, that's really kind, but that's not true for you. Because do you think that your spouse is right, your future spouse? Well, no, not really. I was like, see, this is where it gets hard. And so maybe for you, if you're a single with us today, if you're a student, or even if you're a kid who wants to be married one day, maybe this is the place for you to make a declaration, right? For you to make this faithful promise to God. Maybe today can be the day that you decide to only marry someone who shares your same faith in Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, marriage is hard and life is hard. But if you have someone who shares your faith with you, it makes the things a whole lot easier that are hard for others. And so maybe today is the day you can make that declaration just like the nation of Israel did, just like Paul asked those in, in the church in Corinth to do, is to make this declaration. Now, if this isn't your declaration, though, I got two more for you. 
All right, because here's what they're going to do. Let's, let's look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of, uh, and the exaction of every debt. Now, now here's, here's what had happened here. In the nation of Israel, there were these other nations around them, right? And these other nations had fields and crops and goods and stuff to sell. And so they would come into the nation of Israel to sell these things. And, 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 and so they would have these markets set up selling these goods and services. And, and what we're seeing here is that the nation of Israel, nobody's saying buying from them was bad. It wasn't a matter of that. It was when they were buying from them, Right? Because what the nation of Israel had been doing is they'd been jumping through this little loophole of the Sabbath. Have y'all heard of the word Sabbath? Right? Sabbath means rest. And in the nation of Israel, God had commanded them to rest. Just like he rested on the seventh day, he commanded the nation of Israel to rest on the seventh day. And not only to rest on the seventh day, but he, he commanded them to every 40 years, anybody that owed you money, you were to let them free of that debt. And even in the, in, in the fields, every seven years, you were to let a field go, go without growing anything in it to, to be able to replenish the soil. And, and the nation of Israel at this point wasn't doing any of those things because what they would do, this little loophole on the Sabbath and go to the market, is they'd say, well, all these people are selling stuff here. And if I go buy from them on the Sabbath, I'm not making food, right? I'm buying it already. I'm just getting to go. It's all right. But, but here's what happens. That turned into a day of running errands. Because, listen, here's, let's be real, right? You go to Aldi on Sunday, right? And, and if you think that, well, I'm just going to go to pick up lunch, right? Because I don't want to make lunch. I don't want to make dinner. We'll just buy it already prepared, throw it in the microwave. Then we can rest. And then you get to Aldi and you're like, wait a second, I think I, think I need some things for this week, Right? So you pick up some things. Oh, well, they don't have it. I better go over to Walmart or if you're feeling fancy, Target, and then, and then get what you need, right? If you dress well enough, you go to Target. If you're not, then you just go to Walmart. Right? <laughs> right? It's true. And what meant to be something to give you rest turns into running a whole lot of errands, right? Now, now the way God made Sabbath is he made Sabbath to, to, to be this day that we set aside to worship God with the people of God, just like we're doing online and in person, and to enjoy rest with God. In other words, what makes Sabbath Sabbath is whatever you do for your work, you don't do. Now, that gets complicated, right? Because, well, I mean, for me it's complicated because I kind of got this standing gig on Sundays, Right? If you're a stay-at-home parent, it gets complicated because what does that look like for you to stop besides vacation, right? But that doesn't happen every week. You see, for the nation of Israel, this, this was the loophole. If they go to the market, they didn't have to do the work. And, and when they went to the market, they didn't just do it to get the work. They, they started doing all these other things. And so this worship of, of, of rest and worship became a day of running errands and busyness and, and forgetting about the God who made, who made this promise. 
And so here, remember, we see this circle living is this place of trust, right? This circle living is a place of trust. And, and, and for the church, if experiencing life with God helps us to obey God, let me ask all of us a question. We're a gospel-centered church, right? And this means the gospel is the core of what we do. The gospel is the, is the expression of God uh, creating, fulfilling, and, and, and sealing his promise. That all the way back in Genesis, he said he was going to send one who would crush the head of the serpent. And he did with Jesus. Jesus, and we saw how Jesus fulfilled that promise, and, 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 and he is the sustainer of that promise. And so that, that's what we hold to. That's what a gospel-centered church is, is that we believe life happens in this place of trust in the gospel. And we have this relationship, this life-giving relationship with God through Jesus where he, he deals with our sin and takes away that power and penalty of it. And so in this place, we have, we have rest because we know that God dwells with us and Jesus walks with us. And so for the nation of Israel, their promise was walking on a particular piece of real estate. Our promise is walking in a relationship with God. Now, if this gospel is true, and I'm betting everything I have on the fact that it is, and I know many of you are as well. If this gospel is true, how does it affect our ability to Sabbath? Right now, as I ask that question, how many of you are feeling guilty right now? Stop. Stop. Because here's what guilt does. Guilt drives you to work. Conviction drives you to rest. Right? And so if you're feeling guilty, what you're also thinking is, okay, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. That's work. Conviction drives you to trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. And so how does, how does this gospel affect your ability to Sabbath, particularly in two areas, in worship and in rest, right? Because maybe this is where you can show that you trust God. Because listen, when we trust God, we obey God. That's this circle of promise. When we live in this circle, obedience is our response. And, and it's obedience based on our relationship with God. It's obedience in our relationship, but it's also obedience in our worship. It's obedience in our rest. Now, I've got to tell y'all, this one is a tough one for me. I, I have been working on Sabbathing for decades, and I'm still tweaking it and still making changes in it because I'm not good. You know why? Because the stuff needs to get done, doesn't it? It's hard. It's hard. And, and, and if you're thinking this is hard and this is a declaration that's going to be really hard for you to make, I get you. You are not alone. We are in this together. But y'all, here's, here's what I love. Like, so what if we fail? Right? God still loves us. God still loves us to be in this circle of trust with him. Y'all, that's why Jesus died, is because we are going to fail. And so what do we do? We tweak it and we make changes for next time. We tweak it and we make changes for next time. That's light. That's not heavy. And so, so, so what, does, what does Sabbath look like for you? What, is, what does Sabbath look like for you to have a period of time that's dedicated to worship, right? Worship with God, worship of God, with the people of God. What does it look like for you to, to come here? Guess what? You did it. Yay, you're here. You can check that one off. Yay, right? 
But what does it look like for you to, to find rest with God and to, and to take a particular set of time and focus in on that? What could it look like for you today, a day of worship, where, where worship is about being with God's people and serving God's people? It's about worship and serve and your own transformation and growth. A day of worship and rest where whatever you do for your job, you don't do for a chunk of time. You put work aside, you put, you put the laptop down, you put the phone down, you put, you put the devices down, and you rest. It's a day or a set of time to not do errands, a day of worship and rest, and where you trust God to take care of the mess that's around you. What if you started for just an hour, right? Not a full day. What if you started for just an hour? What if you did do it for a day? You see, maybe this is where you need to drive your stake in the ground. Maybe this is where you need to make your declaration of what Sabbath can look like for you, right? How, how, how God is shaping you. And maybe we can do a Facebook Live about it. Uh, when we finish with Nehemiah, I'm going to do a Facebook Live where we touch on chapter 7 and the end of chapter 5. Maybe we'll throw this in there too about ideas about, about what Sabbath can actually look like. It may be helpful, Right? But what does it look like for you? Now, if this isn't enough, there's one more declaration, right? Do you see why I started talking about light instead of heavy as we go through this? Because it's real easy to feel heavy when we talk about relationships and we talk about Sabbath. And y'all, we haven't even started to get heavy because next is money, right? Let's look at this. Verse 32, it says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give. Right, So to give, to show this, this declaration is going to address this act of giving, that, that trust isn't seen just in the way we live our lives publicly in front of others, in relationships and in worship, but it's also seen in how we live privately before God. That God sees your, your checking account, and maybe nobody else does, but, but here we're going to see some principles to giving. Right, Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel, for the service to the house of God, uh, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of our house of our God. Now, according to Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, uh, there was this yearly gift that the nation of Israel gave for the upkeep of the, the temple, for the upkeep of um, uh, the, the, the synagogues. Right? And, and this yearly gift was given by every family. And, and it went toward keeping everything supplied. It's a, it's a great gift. We don't do that here. We don't ask you to pay a yearly due. We, we do our budget based on giving. And part of that goes to the administrative cost of the building and stuff. But for them, it was this once a year. Now, a shekel is a coin, a gold coin. Uh, and, and a third of that would be about $270 in today's time. At least according to the commentator who converted it, I don't know. But I trust them, right? And so for some families, that meant it had to be saved up over the year because this is in addition to their other offerings, right? And so they would, they would set this money aside and do it once a year, most likely dropping it off. They would go to Jerusalem three times a year, and they would drop it off one of those, one of those times. And, and so this gift was intentional, and it was scheduled. And so there were some regular gifts and, and, and some yearly gifts that required saving up for. And so here we see that giving is intentional. Well, look at this in verse 34. 
It says this, it says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's house, houses at times appointed year by year to, be, uh, to burn on the altar of our Lord as it is written in the law. And so there were times where these special needs arose, like wood for the, for the burnt offerings. And, and the people in the nation would pitch in and bring wood for that so that the temple would have enough wood. And, and there was this system that, uh, that they would use to address this need. This family would give, this family would give, and then this family would give. And then it would go back to this family, and this family, and this family, and it would rotate through. And so here we see uh, that, that not only was this giving intentional, but it had a plan. Like there was a plan to it. And look at this in verse 35. It says, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, uh, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites, uh, to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect these tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And so here we see that there was this regular gift offering of first fruits. Now this was the regular one, right? We had the yearly one, but now we had this regular one. When, when the harvest would come in or, or whenever the, the crafts that they were making, they would have this first collection of the crop and they would take it to the temple. Now notice it's not all of it, it's just a portion of the first Right? And why? Because it's back to this, this circle of, of promise, this circle of trust. Because by taking the first part of it, they're saying, God, we trust you with the rest. We trust you that this won't be the only part of the crop that comes in, that there will be more. And so what we're doing is we're taking what, as humans, we like to take and we like to keep. As God followers, as Jesus followers, he's saying, no, give the first away. And show this is a way to demonstrate trust that you trust me for the rest. So on Sabbath, we trust God for the mess. And in giving, we trust God for the rest. Right? And so in God's economy, we give what's first because we show him that we trust him for the rest. And so giving is this priority. It's not only intentional. It's not only planned. It's a priority. It's, it's the first and look at verse 38 through 39. And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers um, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now here's what's interesting. It was ordered and it was all encompassing. Even the Levites and the priests gave. So here's what's happening. The people bring their offering to the Levites. And then the Levites take a tenth of that offering. That's what a, a tithe is. And then they take it to the temple too, because they don't have an income. What, what they live on is what people bring. And so the Levites were to take and tithe off of that. Now, here's what's interesting. The application of this is more for me than it is for y'all, because it's showing that pastors are not excluded from giving. Because my paycheck and, and the paycheck of all of our staff comes from your tithes and offerings. And then we take a tithe off that and give it to the church as well. Because why? 
Because they did. Because the Levites did. Because when you look at the New Testament, you see the, the, the priests and the apostles and stuff, they gave. They weren't, they weren't excluded. And here's why. Because I don't want to be excluded from trusting God the same way. I want to trust God with the rest of our needs. That's why. And God invites us as pastors to step into this circle of promise just like he asks all of us to do that. And so let's, let's stop here for just a minute and talk about giving and, and talk about how does, does our trust and our life with God fuel this obedience. And, and, and let's look at the principles here that first of all, your giving is a response to your life with God. It's not to get life with God. It's a response to that. And so the question is, have you experienced life with God? Have you said yes to Jesus' offer of life with God? Because Jesus said there is no other way to have life with God than except through him. And so have you said yes to his offer of salvation? Yes to following Jesus? And if not, let today be the day that you do that. And for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced God's provision before when you didn't know how, how you were going to be provided for? Have you ever experienced that? Raise your hand if you have experienced that. Yes. Now, raise your hand again if you've ever been scared this will be the time God doesn't provide. Right? And he does, doesn't he? Now, we may be scared and we may be anxious, but he offers us this place of trust with him to live life with him and then watch him provide. Now, we may have to make changes. We may have to tweak things, but he provides. And so for those of us who have said yes to Jesus and have experienced God's provision before, then we can boldly step back into this circle of promise and this circle of trust, knowing that he will do it again and again and again. And so do you have a plan to give? You know, um, 2 Corinthians says this, again, to, to the church there. It says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compassion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the New Testament model. It's not a yearly gift. It's not, it's not, it's not you don't have to, to bring your first part of your crop, although, although I love squash relish. So if you got some of that, feel free. Right? Like, but, um, but, but the New Testament model is that you give because God has given to you. And a tenth is a great place, but a relationship with God may have you give more. It may have you give less in a time. But it's always this place of trust and always this place of giving. And so, so you can make your plan a priority. Once you've decided to give, you just set up that amount in your budget. And if you don't have a budget, it's a great time to start one, right? And you get a budget and you just set that amount to give. And then we live in an age where you can set it to come out of your account automatically, right? You don't even have to see it. It can come out the moment your paycheck hits your account. Right, and it can go straight there. If you're if you still uh, love writing a check, we've got those boxes on the sides in the back. You just drop it in there, right? Because what you're declaring is that you trust God to take care of the rest. Now, maybe giving is where you need to make this declaration today. 
Now, so as you live in this circle, let me ask you, where do you need to make your declaration? Where do you need to show your trust today? And let's do something very tangible. I want you to write down one of these three words, right? Here's the question. Where, what are you declaring today? Based on your life with Jesus, based on, on this relationship you have, is there a declaration you need to make? And is it in one of these three areas? It is, is it in relationships? Is it in Sabbath? Is it in giving? Write down the word, write down the phrase of your declaration because there's something happens when you write it down. And so which one do you need to make your declaration today? So write down that word and then let God begin to rebuild that in you today. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good um, and your word is really, really good for us and good to us. And so I thank you for that. And as we move into this time of prayer, Jesus, I pray that you will be glorified. In Christ's name I pray, amen.